If you are freaking out, it is probably not because of Minnesota weather, at least this time. This is way over our heads. It's a weather and climate podcast. I'm Jim Dubois. Kenny Blumenfeld's a climatologist. Kenny, how you doing? Oh, I, I am not yet freaking out. Thanks, Jim. It's nice to be outside again. It is. We are on the banks of Minnehaha Creek in South Minneapolis. It's a beautiful Saturday afternoon. It is the uh, 7th of March, and uh, we haven't uh, had a chance to chat for a few weeks here. A lot's gone on, and we'll catch up with some of that in just <laughs> yeah. a moment here. But we're looking forward to what? Will this be our first 60s in the Twin Cities? If, 60 assuming degree reading, we assuming hit it, it happens. Assuming it happens on Sunday the yeah. 8th, yes. Right. And I should tell listeners, just in case they hear me cough, into the microphone. I was positive for influenza A and have had a cough since then. Uh, and that is what you will be hearing. Yes. Well, we'll qualify. It's not COVID-19. Yeah, we don't yes. know. Yeah. It, it seems unlikely that I am the canary in the coal mine. Yes, but, yes uh, exactly. Yes. Thought I would Typhoid that. Kenny, we don't want to. <laughs> yeah. No, thank you. Right. And, and we're not making light of the no. COVID-19 situation by any means. As a matter of fact, a little bit later on, we'll talk about the relationship of weather and climate and uh, disease and public health. Yes, so first indeed. of all, Kenny, let's do a quick weather roundup. We obviously are into the first week of March, which is the beginning of meteorological spring. Yeah, we turned a corner too. I mean, you know, February had its moments, but was by and large a pretty blasé month. I mean, it was a little bit wet in the southern part of Minnesota and generally dry in northern Minnesota and so uh, and kind of mild not warm a little bit cooler than average over most of the state uh, the Twin Cities were kind of the lone station that got above normal for the month but uh, it capped off a uh, pretty warm uh, meteorological and climatological winter that uh, December through February period basically most of Minnesota kind of right around number 20 all time so not not exceptional warmth but uh you know kind of the the type of warmth we've been getting used to in recent winters that we certainly did not see uh last winter right how are we in terms of snowfall in the state in the month of february yeah so in in february the only real snow fell in the southern thir third of the state or so there's a little bit on the north shore but all of the snowfall surpluses uh, for the season have been up in northern Minnesota, but they were really last measured in January, not not much going on in February. Uh, most of the state ended up uh, at the end of February, right around or maybe slightly below, in a few cases slightly above normal for snowfall. So again, this is not 2019. This is We are not back where we were last year in terms of snowfall or snow cover. Look around, Jim. Right. What, do you see? what would you estimate? <laughs> see where I'm pointing there? Okay. Uh, what would you estimate the snow cover is right where I'm pointing? Maybe an inch and a half. Yeah, or yeah. zero. Yeah, or z well, zero there, but Trace, where we do have yeah. some snow that's in the shaded area. Yeah. What, maybe one, max two inches? Right. And yeah. this is what we're seeing around not just the Twin Cities, but much of southern Minnesota. We're getting those bare uh, patches, and there's not much snow cover left. Now, this time last year, uh, basically, the entire state of Minnesota on March 7th had 18 inches of snow on the ground. Wow, what wow. a difference. In yes. northern Minnesota had 24 plus. So big difference. 
Yes, uh, absolutely. Yeah, it's nice. You hear the geese fly by there? I know. It's nice to hear all these noises that people associate with spring and yeah. uh, seeing the snow melt away, seeing people running in shorts. Uh, right. Kind of gets me all excited, Kenny. You know yes. I'm not a fan of winter, unlike you. I'm happy yeah, to see it go. It's a shame because you spend yeah. so much time with it. <laughs> well, that's very true. So let's talk briefly about the flooding situation. We do yeah. have some problems in New Ulm on the Cottonwood River, some flooding down there. Uh, what about on the Minnesota? Soda. Are we okay at this point? Well, we're going to see we some flooding as uh, rivers like the Redwood and the Cottonwood flow into the Minnesota River, but it's not going to be catastrophic. It's going to be the kind of flooding that we've had, probably comparable to what we saw last year, maybe a little lesser. We've had uh, the, the one real difference is we still have these very wet soils. So even though there's not a lot of snow on the ground, there's still water kind of getting pumped into these rivers. And uh, yeah, there's some flooding up in northwest Minnesota along the Red River and then in southwest Minnesota along some of those tributaries to the Minnesota. I would expect high water right up into Fort Snelling again, but uh, not unless we get a lot more precipitation, which right. is possible, but we certainly don't, we're not in that smoking gun pattern right now. Not the kind of prolonged, heavy flooding that we saw throughout much of 2019. So it does look more like a kind of traditional spring flooding. Uh, you know, some pretty high waters. I mean, a flood is a flood. It's going right. to, it means the river's out of its banks. Exactly. And is, you know, taking over the flood plain. And so any properties that are in its way are going to get inundated. But that being said, this isn't a record-setting flood. Uh, and we really dodged a bullet without much snow in February that really helped things along. So again, we were in a much more dire situation where it looked like Boy, if we even just go normal to above normal for snowfall across the main river basins in Minnesota, we were going to have a big spring flood event. But we, after uh, the beginning of February, it kind of shut down in most areas. So right. we're, we're doing okay. Has this kind of slow snow melt-off been helpful, too? It's not oh, like it's... it suddenly was 70 for three days in a row, but we've had above freezing temperatures, so we've been seeing that snowpack decline for um, you know several weeks now. Yeah, really. it's really a nice situation uh, where you have temperatures in the maybe 30s, high 30s or 40s during the day, which is just warm enough. This is what we had for much of the end of February and then early March. Just warm enough to kind of trickle that snow off. And, and But then temperatures would fall below freezing at night. And that is ideal. Uh, now, you know, as we're talking, yeah, we've been above freezing for a while and we're gonna stay above freezing for a while. But uh, most of the snow has already melted. So, yeah, these were pretty ideal conditions. It, it certainly could have been worse. Uh, a much worse scenario would have been we stayed really cold all of February. We didn't melt much snow. And then it all came off at once. That would have been a problem. Well, a couple pieces of weather lore here we should bring up. We didn't touch on these the last time we got together and talked a lot about weather lore. But this is... The weekend of the state boys hockey tournament and there's always this feeling in minnesota that there's the tournament blizzard yeah and that's happened some yeah, years but sure but it's a wide target too <laughs> right, and now right. there's lots of tournaments so yeah. Yeah, this is kind of well it depends on who and how you ask are we talking about the base uh, the basketball tournament we're talking the hockey about the hockey tour tournament yeah. right now yes yeah but this lore around the tournament blizzard is it's a fairly wide moving target because historically the hockey tournament has been anywhere from the end of the first week in March to the third week in March. So, you know, in some years, sure, we've had big snowstorms. And remember, from right up through the 80s, really, that March was a, 
a snowy month. We had right. a lot of snowstorms, and then it kind of started shutting down a little bit in the 90s and the in the last couple decades. But it's not preposterous, Jim. I mean, because the chance of having a snowstorm, uh, you know, at some point during March or several points during March is always actually pretty good. Uh, so on its face, there's nothing wrong. It's just th- there's the idea is that it's kind of a moving target. And when you look at a particular day or a set of dates in March, there isn't some huge spike where we expect lots and lots of snowstorms. We say we see kind of the same thing with Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving occupies, you know, basically four days is how most people experience it. But it's a moving window, right? It's anywhere between, you know, it might begin as early as like the 21st or 22nd and then go as late as, you know, November 30th sometimes. And so the the chance of snow sometime or a big storm sometime during that moving window is always pretty high. And it's, you know, with four days or in the case of the hockey tournament, several days. Right. It's um, it's. It's always fairly likely that, you know, every few years something could happen. But, uh, yeah, and, and the one thing that is absolutely correct about this is both Thanksgiving and, you know, the sort of mid-March tournament season, these both are times of transition for our seasons. And when we, our seasons are in transition, it can get pretty exciting, pretty active. Well, we'll dispel another piece of weather lore here because we've often heard that if March comes in like a lamb, it will go out like a lion. Hmm. Nothing yeah. to it, right, Kenny? Uh, no, nope. there's nothing no. to it. It could go, it could go in like a lion and out like a lion. It can go in like a lamb and out like a lamb. Uh, it'll look. The lion will probably roar once in any good March. <laughs> You're gonna right. hear it roar, and it might be at the end of the month, and it might be at the beginning of the month. No, you can't. You can't really predict the weather four weeks out based on what happened. You know, based on the state of the atmosphere at that time. In fact, Jim, in 1985, uh, March 3rd and 4th, a pretty good snowstorm hit Minnesota. And I remember looking at this with uh, the famous consulting meteorologist, Bruce Watson. He showed me something. But, uh, and you could actually see from some of the upper level charts that the system that caused that snowstorm, the big upper level wave that caused that snowstorm in early March, and it dropped, you know, a foot to a foot and a half of snow over much of Minnesota, shut down schools. That system moved out over the Atlantic Ocean, kind of passed over Western Europe, then over that sort of Eurasian region, passed out over the Kamchatka Peninsula into the Pacific, hit the West Coast, reformed a new low pressure system and hit us again at the end of that same March of 1985 with another foot of snow. So sometimes weather systems will go all the way around the world. If you look at it from space, you'll actually see a semi-continuous band of activity. And so, yeah, you can't predict the end of the month based on the beginning of the month. It's just nonsense. Okay, well, that's good to know. So uh, it doesn't rule out, though, the fact that we might have a significant snowstorm toward the end of March, though. Yeah, that's true. And we, we might. I kind of hope we do. Uh, I hope we have one at some <laughs> point during March. It's been a while since we had a good March well, that's snowstorm. That's true. That's true. But it has nothing to do with the fact that March came in like a lamb. No, we get, no. no. In Absolutely. fact, uh, the Climate Prediction Center seems to think that March came in warm and it's going to go out warm. We'll see.
they're no good at this either, but. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) We'll move on now to a listener question. This comes from Jim in West Virginia. The question has to do about the relationship. We uh, we reach around the world. Yeah, apparently. Wow. Actually, I've seen we have downloads from China, from Russia, you name it. Yeah, they're just up to something, right? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> welcome, everybody. We are an international community. Welcome, welcome. Yes. yes. Worldwide. Yeah, Here very we go. good. Yep. So anyway, um, Jim is interested in the relationship between weather, climate, and disease. And of course, what tees that up now is uh, President Trump famously or infamously, as we may say, uh, a couple of weeks ago, said he had a conversation with Chinese President Xi Jinping. And President Xi supposedly told him that come April, no more worries about COVID-19, that the disease just kind of dies out. And uh, so that begs the question. I mean, we know things warm up in April. Uh, Is there any relation? And we should tee this up by saying that, Kenny, that's not your area of expertise. (laughs) Heck no. Uh, Nor is it mine. But there are some interesting relations. Sure, we can talk about it. Yeah, there's scholarly research. I pulled up an interesting article that talked about the influence of weather and climate on things like vector-borne illnesses. If there's more rain, there may be more mosquitoes hatching that could be spreading malaria. Under certain weather conditions, we may see uh, good times for the rat population, and there are more rat-human interactions, which we know spread Uh, Can good times for the rat population be possibly be good for anyone else <laughs> i don't think so no even though is this the this is the year of the rat though is it isn't the, it i believe it is we'll i think check. yeah we'll I, I think it is so let's hope that's not the case that uh it's not a good year for a lot of rats but one thing that comes to mind is uh something called the great smog of london that took place in december of 1952 we know that london is known for its fog and sometimes very poor conditions in terms of uh, air pollution. But in this particular case, it happened during a period of cold weather. There was an anti-cyclone and windless conditions. So airborne pollutants coming from the use of coal, which was widespread at that time in London, uh, came together to form a thick layer of smog. And uh, it was a fair amount of time, too. It began on Friday, the 5th of December of 1952, through Tuesday the 9th of December and uh, once the weather changed it dispersed but uh, there were all kinds of issues of course reduced visibility people were hit by cars there were vehicular accidents but the most incredible thing is that there was a chemical reaction that basically created sulfuric acid in the air which of course is highly toxic and uh, it's estimated that about 4,000 people died as a direct result from the smog, and as many as 100,000 more were made ill. Yeah, that's a little more than a smog, because smog is really a, a photochemical fog, and it's usually, uh, it, generally, you think of it's producing ozone, it's kind of catalyzing, you have sunlight and uh, uh, warm, relatively warm conditions catalyzing the oxides in the air, and you get that, you get ozone produced in the lower atmosphere, and that's an irritant. Sulfuric acid is a whole other other deal, you know, but the point I think is that um, those conditions that sort of air stagnation, you might hear a lot about that, especially back when the Weather Channel used to do those separate weather and your health segments. Air stagnation is actually a problem because any 
any pollutants, whether they're produced naturally or any toxins in the air, whether they're produced naturally or through pollution and industrial combustion, uh, they will tend to just hang around or even get pressed towards the earth in that uh, in sort of an air stagnation type of pattern. So that is a, a key ingredient. And in fact, we could talk to Daniel Dix from the Pollution Control Agency, and he would tell you a lot of our worst air quality days here in Minnesota, the, air, the winds are pretty light. And that lets that particulate matter kind of settle down. It lets, if we are forming smog, the, um, then it lets the, the smog does not disperse. Uh, so yeah, you kind of hit it on the head there. In terms of the larger relationship between health and weather and climate, I mean, I think public health officials and astute observers have noted for, for a long, long time that the annual cold season certainly follows winter, right? People tend to sniffle more. You get those outbreaks of influenza more frequently in the winter. And certainly what we're talking about uh, in the current public health situation you know, it began in the winter, and I think there's still some questions about how how winter-driven it is. And the exact causes of that, you'd have to talk to public health officials and physiologists to find out what is it about these viruses that, may, that you know, causes them, or what is it about us that makes us so much sicker uh, from those sorts of things in the winter. But some of the other things that you mentioned, you know, cholera outbreaks following large storms, or, you know, malaria outbreaks following very heavy rains, those are going to have much more of a summer and a warm season signal. And when we were talking about Zika uh, just a few years ago, that, Z- that terrible Zika virus, right. that is also a warm season kind of mosquito season concern, especially in tropical and subtropical areas. So we know that there's a meteorological component that you can track to a lot of disease outbreaks. It's just, I think that the big question with the current issue is how locked into winter is it? Uh, We do have instances of it uh, affecting folks in the Southern Hemisphere where it's been summer. But, uh, and then the other question again, and this is really one for public health officials, is and if, if it does shut down when it gets nice and sunny, is it going to come roaring back in the fall as we go back into that winter transition? And that's, uh, you know, that's what happened with the big pandemic, the flu pandemic of 2009, 2010, and also what happened with the, the Spanish flu of, what, 1918. Right. Right. So uh, I wouldn't just, if it does uh, get modified a bit during the spring and summer, I, that doesn't necessarily mean the game is over. And that's that absolutely exhausts my knowledge of this topic. But, Jim, one thing I can, and I think all forecasters can kind of relate to, is what the public health officials and also you've noticed economists people are trying to make forecasts yes all right now that that is something that we can relate to because they are not going to you know they are probably not going to be given credit for good forecasts and they are they have a lot of boy there's a lot of uncertainty for them to think about too and this all gets at what we call nonlinearities you know, if um, think of putting water into a balloon, you can predict the volume of the balloon simply by knowing how much water you successfully got into that balloon, and how much water is going to fill in the balloon is a direct function of how much how much water you put into it. Right? That's right. a really simple linear relationship. But with something like, I mean, even just imagine predicting the attendance at an amusement park, right? 
from a first approximation, you might say, ah, if the weather is good, right? If the weather is good, then we would expect large crowds. But you could add one very simple variable like, yeah, but if the weather is good, but the population is really worried about something, then maybe you can't expect large crowds. And the public health officials have so many different variables to think about. And then the economists have to essentially anticipate human behavior in response to an outcome that's largely unknown. And the one thing that I think all forecasters kind of recognize about this, Jim, is that when the officials from the CDC or the Center for Disease Control and Prevention are saying, they're telling you, you know, kind of a worst case or a possible or a probable worst case scenario. They're not really telling you what they think is going to happen. They're just giving you an example of, you know, one end of the range, kind of the high end of the range of possibilities, and they believe it would be irresponsible not to tell you what could happen. And this is something meteorologists struggle with all the time, right? I mean, you've probably seen, you ever seen a forecast where they missed the mark at wasn't nearly as bad as we said oh, it was yes, going to be. Have yes. we ever done a podcast? Yes, something about a meteorological mea culpa, as I recall. Yeah, we've done those. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, and and I think that the you know there's a decent chance that what we're hearing from the public health community is it really accounting for a range of possibilities, but that there's no easy way to express that whole range. The same thing we deal with as uh, forecasters. How do you express uncertainty when you're trying to explain what the weather is most likely to be like? People don't want to hear, well, we think it's going to rain, but it actually could snow, could not snow, could be sunny out. Uh, People want to know, okay, expert, what do you think is really going to happen? And so what we're seeing with the public health officials is kind of hedging against all of that uncertainty. And right now they're focused on what must be, you know, maybe some of the worst case scenarios. It would be interesting to know what, you know, what on the, what's the most optimistic scenario. And then something the weather service has been doing really well with snowstorms over the last few years is saying, okay, here's what's most likely. So here's what we're actually predicting. But then we see a nine out of 10 chance of it being this bad. And, uh, or I'm sorry, a one out of 10 chance of it being this bad and also a one out of 10 chance of it being this good. So something that we can relate to that's come out of this is uh, I guess we have, uh, I I guess we can commiserate with the people who are being asked what's going to happen. Right, right. Well, let's move on to a weather event that occurred earlier this past week in the Nashville, Tennessee vicinity, tornadoes. And they were unusual in the sense that First of all, they came late at night, and then some people will say, getting back to the weather lore discussion, oh, they hit a major city and went through the downtown. Yeah. Uh, We've dispelled that one before, but tell us about these, uh, Kenny. This this was interesting because they hit late at night and early in the morning, and uh, people were sleeping, and they were quite uh, devastating, and I believe 24 people at this point have been counted as dead from the result of the tornadoes. Yeah. In fact, Jim, this gets at exactly what we were just talking about. You know, normally, uh, I would say this was an abnormal situation. Tornadoes actually do strike cities. We'll get there in a second. Right. And tornadoes in the Deep South especially do strike at night. And 
they do come in outbreaks, unfortunately, especially in the deep south, or at least, you know, from Appalachia down to the Gulf of Mexico and over into kind of East Texas and Arkansas, that area gets a lot of killer tornadoes. And so from that standpoint, it wasn't that strange. The strangest thing, and I'm not trying to throw any forecasters under the bus here, but the strangest thing is how really, how, how, I want to say how this wasn't foreseen by the Storm Prediction Center, which is the NOAA center in Norman, Oklahoma, that is responsible for issuing the convective risk outlooks and also the uh, severe weather watches. Now, they, they did kind of late in the game get a tornado watch posted for these storms, but they didn't seem to know that what was about to happen uh, was even remotely possible. If you look at the language in, the, in their watch text, they were kind of saying, well, the ingredients are marginal for tornadoes, uh, but there, you know, there, there might be a few or there might be one or two. Usually, these days, because forecasting has gotten so good, the forecasters can see the potential for a major event like this one, especially a major nocturnal event like this one, and will have the appropriate risk level in their convective, that's their thunderstorm outlook, and will have the right wording in their tornado watches. So that was one of the things that was really odd about this was how, uh, you know, the local National Weather Service had several minutes of lead time on their tornado warnings, but they really didn't have a, a clean handoff from the agency that issues the watches. And, and I just think the situational awareness of what was about to happen was, for whatever reason, very low among forecasters. And that caught the whole community off guard. I mean, Jim, this, this is one of the great tornado outbreaks of the year for sure. Uh, you know, and I, I'm confident in that because we had double digit fatalities and very large destructive long track tornadoes. Uh, but usually those types of uh, severe weather events are preceded by at least a, an enhanced risk of severe weather and usually it would be a moderate and maybe even a high risk uh, and this was preceded by a slight risk and again the wording on it was pretty soft there wasn't any indication that there could be long track or damaging or significant tornadoes in anything that the storm prediction center uh, had released so again that's not the, i mean it, it was it must have been a very difficult night for whichever forecasters ended up releasing the watches and the outlooks because that is not the kind of outcome you want. That's the kind of thing we thought we were done with, you know, when tornadoes would seem to come out of the blue in the 1950s. Once that era sort of began winding down, we now tend to overwarn and end up with, you know, these sort of false alarms that I think you maybe were alluding to. So that was one element that was probably strangest to me. But in terms of the tornado hitting the city... You know, uh, the National Weather Service out of Nashville posted a track of the map and they uh, posted it right alongside two other tornadoes that had gone into Nashville. The fact is, tornadoes like Nashville. I don't know why. I don't know if they're actually attracted to Nashville or if Nashville just has bad luck. But, you know, another city that tornadoes seem to like a lot? Which city is that? What's the name of that city that uh, we're standing in right now? Oh, Minneapolis. Yeah, tornadoes yes. seem to like Minneapolis, too. Minneapolis has a long, storied history with tornadoes. We could, you know, we could go back to the potential tornado of uh, April 
1820. So we're coming up on a 200th anniversary for that. But we also have, you know, throughout the 19th and 20th and even into the 21st century, a number of tornadoes that have actually struck Minneapolis. For whatever reason, St. Paul's had a little less activity. But the whole thing, when you look at all the cities that have been hit by tornadoes, Fort Worth, Nashville, a bunch of times, Minneapolis, a bunch of times. Salt Lake City. Salt Lake City, Miami, Oklahoma City, Raleigh, North Carolina, Springfield, Massachusetts, which is kind of marginal. I wouldn't say it's, it's not really a major city, but way up there they got hit. Uh, St. Louis, Missouri. Uh, when you add all of that up, it's very difficult to conclude that tornado, Atlanta, Georgia, that tornadoes avoid cities. And instead, you have to realize tornadoes are very rare events, and the chance of them hitting any one kind of small place is always going to be very low. But the fact, the fact alone that they have hit cities should dispel the myth entirely. And the fact that they have hit uh, multiple cities, and some of them multiple times, tells us that, you know, the best way to approach this is to assume that in the right conditions, a tornado can hit anywhere, right? And before any of our listeners, our loyal listeners, call us on this, yes, we'll point out in 1820, Minneapolis as a city did not exist. Oh, correct. However, love it. we had Fort Snelling and a weather observer there who kept rather for the time detailed records. And that's how we know yeah. about this possible sure. tornado, correct? And in, and in fairness to the argument, I suppose... I suppose, Jim, that if someone is saying tornadoes don't hit cities, they're not just talking about the geographical location where some city is eventually going to be. Right. They're, they're thinking it's the buildings, it's the heat right. island, it's right. some some mechanism. But, you know, it's almost a... Are you feeling a little bit nostalgic, Jim, talking about this? Because this was the first conversation you and I ever it had. It is, Kenny. Yes, that's the <laughs> this first is the conversation. First, it just yep. occurred to me. as that something? Uh, yeah. Right after the Minneapolis tornado of 2011. Right. 2011, yep. Yep. Mm-hmm. You, uh, you, you were looking for a tornado expert through the University of Minnesota. And they, they must have said, well, I, I don't know about expert, but I have a loud mouth for you. <laughs> and, uh, and, you know, the rest is history. Right, right. Yeah, but uh, the, the, the point is, is, yeah. Any populated area can be hit by a tornado if the if the conditions are right, and any built-up area. I mean, we we've seen tornadoes in Brooklyn, and if you look at New York City, the whole thing is like a downtown. I mean, the whole all the boroughs—it's just like an expansive downtown area. And you know, 2009, we had a tornado go right into downtown Minneapolis. Right. We know that the Lake Harriet to Harmar tornado of 1981 split the difference between the University of Minnesota and uh, and downtown Minneapolis. So it went yes. right next to downtown. We've, we've had plenty of close calls. I mean, uh, the, the bottom line being, if you have some kind of folk science telling you that you're safe from some sort of weather event, you, you're probably not. And you, uh, it doesn't mean that we're going to all get hit this year. It just means that in the right conditions, it can happen. Well, we do need to mention, too, that just yesterday, that was March 6th, we're recording this on Saturday, March 7th, we marked the third anniversary of the earliest tornado yeah. recorded in Minnesota. Yeah, another warm day, warm and humid, with uh, temperatures getting into the 60s and 70s and a powerful low-pressure system uh, coming through the region. And we had uh, a 
kind of a broken line of thunderstorms, supercell. Some of them were rotating. One that went up through the Princeton area and the other one went kind of closer to Albert Lee produced a total of three tornadoes. None of them were big tornadoes, uh, but they did some damage, some structural damage to homes and damage to trees. And there were a couple agricultural buildings that were also hit. Yeah, that was unusually early. That I think was a, over a week earlier than the, the second earliest tornado on record in Minnesota. And then it was followed by pretty strong regional winds. And if you've ever been up to the North Shore, then you know that there's, uh, as you get into two harbors, there's that statue of Pierre, the voyageur. Yes, and, yes. And uh, he lost an arm. His arm blew off. Oh, my goodness. In the, in the strong regional winds that followed that cold front. And the cold front, of course, is what helped ignite those thunderstorms that produced the tornado. So it was a pretty action-packed uh, period for weather in Minnesota there. Well, of course, tomorrow, and a lot of people will be hearing this podcast most likely tomorrow or even Monday, but we're all going to be out in our glory tomorrow, oh probably in shorts, short sleeves, and just basking in this 60-degree warmth, which knock on whatever tree is closest, we hope happens tomorrow, but that's what's forecast. So. Yeah, it's going to be warm across the state. I've got, my kids are up uh, on the, <laughs> near Lake Superior skiing, and it's going to be, you know, probably in the low 40s there. And uh, so across Minnesota, the temperatures are going to be way above normal. But it's going to be especially spring-like. Basically from the Twin Cities to St. Cloud on west and south. And that's where temperatures are going to hit the upper 50s into the 60s and possibly in southwest Minnesota, south and west of the Minnesota River. I wouldn't be surprised if we notch our first 70s. Uh, that would be something else. And you're right. We are going to celebrate this. Even though it wasn't a particularly long or brutal winter, I think just the combined, the snowpack, the kind of hangover from the wet fall, the concerns about flooding and all of that, I think people just really feel like they need a good, a good warm and dry day, and, and we're going to get it. It's going to be something else. And farmers are going to love it. <laughs> Absolutely. And what happens after that? Well, then we kind of resume uh, more normal conditions, slightly warmer than normal. We're, yeah, the, it's a brief honeymoon. Okay. You can't expect too <laughs> much from it. March. I mean, not every March can be 2012. Now, in 2012, that March put on a show. Uh, lot, lots of areas in Minnesota. I think March of 2012, International Falls hit 79 degrees in the middle of the month. Uh Twin Cities had its earliest 80 degree on record. We had our first 60 degree dew point on record and we finished the month, many areas in the state finished the month with between five and 10 different 70 degree or warmer days. That was March, 2012. Most Marches aren't like that. And most of the time when you do have a nice warm up in March, it's brief and that'll happen here. I don't see the bottom falling out. There is a good cold front up around the international border and it's going to make gestures towards us over the next week or so but you know cold this time of year isn't what it was in january and you know uh maybe far northern minnesota will see you know one or two more uh, more days where it's zero or colder but those days are really numbered and here in southern minnesota that's probably done and, all right uh, and it looks like really the next week week and a half is going to be mild uh just chances of precipitation, but we don't have a smoking gun showing us big, heavy precipitation producing weather systems yet. They, they keep showing up on the models. 
seven, eight days away and then they don't, they don't actually arrive. So we'll wait till we see something a little more decisively, uh, you know, knocking on our door before we uh, start to uh, talk about precipitation totals and snowstorms and things like that. Well, we'll in the meantime enjoy the promise of spring and we're already in meteorological spring. As a matter of fact, today, Kenny, yes. I looked where our tulips and our daffodils and our rhubarb are and hey, the first sprouts. Oh, there's emergence. You're getting emergence. Yes, yeah, you exactly. can see it under some of these leaves too. Uh, but for most, most of us, it's just muddy. <laughs> It's just That's muddy. True. That's true. It's just I promise to find a better place by the creek the next time. Oh, Kenny, so we're not sneaking. The next time we're, or, by or we're by the not creek, sinking in the mud here. Probably won't be this wet. No, this is what absolutely. you get in the spring. Yep. Yeah. Well, Kenny, as always, great talking with you. We'll get together again next week, uh, maybe again here at the uh, banks of Minnehaha oh, yeah. Creek in South Minneapolis. If, uh, if all things line up properly, we'll be here for the. The most of the majority of the rest of the podcast for the next several months. So Excellent. Yeah. Kenny, have a great week, and uh, we'll talk to you next time. You too. Thanks, Jim.